We are Centerpoint Church. This is a recent recording from our Sunday morning gathering. We hope you can join us at the Odeon Cinema in Guildford, Sundays at 10 a.m. Enjoy the message. Wow, hello. Good morning, good morning. Right, I'll, uh, I'm going to gather you back together. And uh, it's good, isn't it? Isn't it so good to worship together? I just, um, I felt, I mean, James has got a great voice, but Deborah, I mean, she was unbelievable. Like, so good to worship. You know, um, Deborah only, like, started coming along to the church a couple of months ago. She was new, and uh, I love that, that already she's serving our, our worship team so well. And do you know what? If you're new, there's a place for you here. You can get involved. You can get stuck in. There's lots to do. We're about a good work. And so I want to encourage you to, yeah, be a part of us. And um, don't worry, it's just Chris ruining all the gift bags. It's all good. Don't worry about it, Chris. I'll put it on your tab. And um, anyway, my name's, my name's also Chris. And um, I'm the, the leader here at Centerpoint Church. And it's so good to gather together. Um, we're in, um, going to be in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians today uh, as we go through our series called Church as God Intended. So I would encourage you to turn to it now. And I've entitled this morning's talk, Healthy Relationships, because the passage we're going to read through speaks into all sorts of different types of relationships. And I want to warn you now that it is a long passage, all right? It's long. And not only is it long, but it's also confusing. And um, if we were to just read through it, by the end of it, you, you, you A, would be confused, and B, could be quite concerned about, what, does, does Paul think that people shouldn't have sex? Does Paul think that... Um, like marriage is bad, does, like you could have all sorts of different questions if you're just reading through. And so what I'm going to do today is rather than reading the whole thing up front, I'm going to talk a bit and then read a bit and talk a bit and read a bit and give context as we go through. And that's going to be most of the morning. All right, that's, that's quite a big chunk. And then uh, towards the end, I'm then going to bring three application points. And I'm going to encourage you to uh, dig into the passage. It's good to, if you've got it on the Bible app or you've got it in front of you, it's good to have it open in front of you um, because it will apply to every single person in here. It doesn't matter who you are, it will apply to you. And so I want to encourage you to be alert. And um, it's, it's warm today. Isn't that good? Oh, hey, it's like warm in here. I'm not freezing. And uh, anyway, so it's good. Anyway, before, um, in, in a way of telling you a bit about the context is I, I want to do that by telling you a little bit about me, all right? A little story to illustrate some of the context. When I was younger, I went to Brazil. Uh, this is about 15 years ago. And uh, in Brazil, um, I was there for about six months and I was um, volunteering in the slums and the favelas. And in Brazil, children don't start school until they're seven years old. And so the rich kids, they get a private education. And so by the time they start school at seven, they're, they're flying and they do really well. The poor kids, the ones that live in the slums and the favelas, they, they don't have that. And so when they start, they, they're already behind, even before day one. And I think well over 50% of children by the age of 10 drop out of school and something like 80% by the time of 18 from those that come from the slums and favelas. 
And so whilst I was there, I was working with a church to provide a free education to some of the kids in the favelas, the four to six-year-olds specifically to that age range, so that when they started school, they'll be all right. And I've, got, I've had permission from the, the parents to show their pictures. Anyway, whilst I was there, I grew my hair, as you can see. And... Um, I, I kind of, I wanted to get my hair braided, um, something called cornrows, for those who aren't from my community. And um, I, was, I, was, I was 18, and I was told by our Brazilian hosts that there's a, a good hairdresser's um, on the high street. In fact, I told him I was just going to get my hair cut. I didn't, I sort of, I didn't want to tell people I wanted to get it braided. So I said, I'm going to get my hair cut. And he said, right, there's good hairdressers. You go to the main high street, go to that one, and, and then come straight back. And whatever you do, do not cross over the road and go into the kind of slum area past it because that's like run by gang lords. It's kind of drug land territory and any Westerner going in there, will there will be issues. So do not go there. It's like, do not. It was a strict rule. And um, so... I, I was like, yeah, no, that's cool, that's fine. I'll go there. And on my way to the hairdresser, I got to the hairdressers and it was shut. But I really wanted my hair cut. So I was like, wow, what's the worst that could happen? And so I, I found out from someone on the street where this place was and I ventured into, um, into this slum. And uh, this is not the exact slum, but it's similar. And I ventured into the slum and uh, it looks very much like this. And uh, it was about a kilometre through it. I was walking through and um, found this shack and kind of knocked on the door, went in and got my, got my hair braided. But um, I got cornrows. And um, for those who know anything about it, this is like a five-hour process. And so I was there, you know, sort of chatting to the people. And uh, luckily, when I was walking through the slum, because I because of my skin colour, I look Brazilian. So I obviously I didn't speak anything. So no one knew any of the wiser. So that, I think that was what was protecting me. Anyway, um, unbeknown to me, whilst I was there having my hair cut, there was panic happening back at the host's home. And uh, they had gone out to the shop, realised it's shut, and like, where on earth is Chris? And uh, six hours later, I then sort of venture into the, into the home and there's, there's panic, there's chaos, there's fury, there's anger, there's tears. Oh, you're okay. I'm so glad you're okay. And, um, and, I, and my response was, oh, yeah, but it's worth it though, isn't it? Because um, I look good, right? And uh, this, is, uh, this is what happened. And uh, I got, these are my braids. In fact, that's, so that was a picture taken shortly after with uh, a guy called Tavares, who's our host. And uh, he was just really happy, to be honest, that I was alive. But the reason why I mention that story is because throughout the first six chapters in 1 Corinthians, Paul is giving the Corinthians a firm no-go. Like, do not cross these boundaries. Don't cause division in the church. Um, stay in unity. Don't sleep with your stepmom. Don't sleep with prostitutes. If you're here for the first time, we've, we've been covering this over the last few weeks, so it's not weird. This is seriously, this is what's going on. And there was clear lines, and like me, the Corinthian church have been crossing those lines. They've been going into the no-zone areas. And so for the first six chapters, Paul is quite clear. He's quite, he's quite like, this, this, is, this, is the, this is the line. This is what church discipline looks like. And then we kind of, as we get into chapter 7, we get a change of tone. 
And this change of tone actually happens for the rest of the book. You see, the Corinthian church, they had written a letter to Paul. And they'd been asking, well, now that we're Christians, how do we deal with these certain issues? Things were starting to crop up for them, and they were wondering, well, what do we do about it? And so Paul starts, verse 1, now, for the matters um, that you, you wrote to me about. And that's how he starts. Now, we don't have the letter that they wrote to Paul. We don't have that. But based on what Paul then goes on to say, we can work out the kind of things that they were asking. And also, because Paul quotes it, actually, in, the very, in that very first verse, he says, look, the things you were asking me about, you were saying, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And so this is not Paul saying it, this is Paul quoting what they said to him. And so you might be wondering, why would they say something like that? Because what that really, if you were to translate it more literally, it would be, they were saying, it is good for a man not to sleep with his wife. Well, why would they say that? Well, uh, it's a bit of context. Um, and we've spoken about this over the last few weeks. They, they lived in Corinth, and Corinth as a city was under Roman rule. And it was a hub of commerce and enterprise. And most importantly, it was a center of philosophy and thinking. And um, in fact, enlightenment and knowledge was considered as the aim of life. So much so that the type of this, a type of thinking called Gnosticism developed. And Gnostics thought that the body or earthly creation was evil. And, um, and it was bad, and anything spiritual, like your mind or, or the th- things of God, were good. And so um, w- what this kind of meant was that uh, this kind of Gnostic thinking developed in lots of different ways, so much so that uh, after this period, people would say that Jesus wasn't really a physical human being, because if the physical body is evil, then how could Jesus, who is like God's son, be evil and uh, this is how this thinking played out and uh, here's a fun fact bible fact for you whenever the bible talks about resurrection it always means physical resurrection never means any other it always means physical and so many of the uh, writers of the gospels and then and the new testament go on about jesus physical body uh, as well as his spiritual like healings and stuff like that and how he ate and things like that so the knowledge, this kind of knowledge, enlightenment, this kind of thinking, this Gnosticism, what it developed was a philosophy that, well, if the body is bad, one way it developed was that, therefore, because it's bad, and really the only thing that's important is your knowledge and your spiritual life, therefore you can do what you like with your body. And we saw a couple of weeks ago in chapter 6 how people were sleeping around with temple prostitutes. And now that I can do whatever I like with my body, um, because that really that's just evil and it's going to like turn to dust anyway I can do what I like with it and Paul dealt with that in chapter six and the other way though so that's one way of viewing it but the other way is that if the body is evil and bad then a thinking developed that therefore I shouldn't allow my body to have any kind of gratification I shouldn't let it uh, satisfy its desires like with good food which is going to be in chapter eight or with um, sex and so what it meant was that a, a kind of thinking developed that is coming out in chapter seven that you should abstain if you want to be a really good Christian then you should abstain from sex even if you're married and this is what the Corinthian church was writing to Paul about and asking him about this. And that's important for you to know because as we read through, this is the issue that Paul is tackling. And so 
um, Paul addresses their thinking. And so he says, now for the matters you wrote about, you said it's good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. But, verse 2, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Unbelievably, husbands and wives were not having sex with each other because they wanted to be super spiritual. But the impact of that was that they were getting involved in sexually immoral things. They were going to sleep with the temple prostitutes, like what we mentioned last week. And um, and if you didn't get the, if you haven't got, listened to it yet, get the download. It was it was a fun, it was a fun week. So um, that's what they were doing. And so Paul's like, "What are you talking about? Like." You want to be super spiritual by not having sex with your wife, but you're going ahead and getting involved. Since there's sexual morality among you, this is not good. You need to make sure you're doing it. And he goes on in verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. He, when he says duty, it's not like, oh, sex has to be a duty in marriage. No, no, he's, he's like saying, no, come on. This is a good thing, so give yourselves to each other. And you notice that he talks about um, the wife's body not being a, her own, but in a massively countercultural way. What Paul says next is absurd. Because in uh, Corinth, in, the, in this day, everyone knew that a wife's body belonged to the husband, that a wife herself belonged to the husband. But now Paul, he's about to go on and he's well ahead of his time because he talks of sexual equality, spousal equality, and all of this comes from gospel equality that he knows about already. And so he says, in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you, you know, to get involved in something else because you lack self-control. I say this as a concession, not as command. So Paul, he recognises that on occasions it's good for Christians to have some focused times of prayer and devotion to God whereby they may choose by mutual consent not to have sex with each other. But um, again, that's a countercultural thing because he's saying it's a mutual agreement. It's not something that just the husband decides. Um, but he says it's only for a short time. And so the, he says, oh, I say this as a concession, not as a command. The concession he gives is not that men and women should have sex in their marriage. The concession is that it's okay sometimes to not have sex in your marriage. And that, is, that needs to be for a short time. And then he goes on, I wish that all of you were as I am, um, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has gift, this gift and one has that. And what he means by that, when he says, I wish that you were as I am, he means, I wish that you were single and celibate. And we talked about what it, think that uh, the only godly alternative to male-female marriage is to be single and celibate. And celibate meaning uh, not engaging in any sexual, in, uh, sexual activity with any other person. And we covered all that last week, so I'm not going to cover that ground again today. But Paul is saying that there are gifts in the church. There's a gift of being single and there's a gift of being marriage, uh, married and uh, we're going to talk about that a bit later and he says but so now so we talked about hey it's good to be like me single and celibate and you can and that is a gift and you can worship God in that way but in verse 8 it says now to the unmarried um, and the widow so he goes on and the widows I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do but if they cannot control themselves they should 
marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And he's not saying that the only reason to get married is if you can't keep it in your pants. That's, that's not what he's saying. What he's sa- he knows that marriage is good. He knows that marriage is of God. And, but what he's saying is that in this period of time, um, that it, it, if a, someone can remain unmarried, then that is a good thing because they can serve God in a way that um, a married partner can't. And he's going to elaborate on that as well later on in the passage. So I won't say too much about that now. So then he says, to the married. So to the married people. So he's talking about the unmarried. To the married people, I give this command. And he specialised, hey, it's not me, but it's the Lord. The Lord says this. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. I'm just going to pause a little bit longer on this passage. Sometimes we can think that, bib- that biblical times were like the 1920s, where everyone was like, like married together with a family unit. But in the Corinthian culture, divorce was strife. It was massive. Everyone was doing it all the time. People would have had multiple wives. They would have got divorced here and there. And in Jewish culture, a woman could not legally divorce. But in the Roman culture, they could. And uh, men and women could divorce each other. And so all of this is kind of creeping into the church. And they were thinking, well, in order to be holy and spiritual and devoted to God, husbands, sorry, in order to be holy and spiritual, what was happening is that husbands and wives were separating from each other. Because they thought that the way to be a good Christian, to be a holy Christian, to follow God rightly, was to separate. And that meant leaving their children behind, leaving their husbands behind, leaving the family home. They thought that was the holy thing to do. And Paul's like, no, don't do that. What are you doing? You've got to stay together. A wife must not separate from his husband. And a a man must not divorce his, his wife. And... Many people can take these verses as Paul's systematic theology on divorce. But it's just not that. That's not the case. The context here is healthy marriages breaking up in order to try to please God. And Paul says in that context, no, don't do that. Remember your marriage vows. Remember that you should stay together. And this morning, I don't have, I don't have time to talk about divorce. And I think it's an important topic because so much of our society are divorced. And I know that there are people in this room that have been divorced. But Jesus, I will say this, Jesus does talk about it, and so does Paul elsewhere. And they both express that God's best for any marriage is that it remains together. But they both also recognise there are circumstances where actually the godly thing to do is to divorce. And Jesus gives examples of when that's true. Like, for example, marital unfaithfulness would be one. And, or where there are circumstances of irretrievable marital breakdown in cases like neglect or abuse, which we can come in many forms. And there's others too. But, and where there is no possibility of restoration, the Bible would indicate that the only godly alternative is to divorce. In the not-too-distant past, churches have taken a real hard line because they've taken this scripture, this passage, out of context. 
And they have said to people, oh, it doesn't matter what's going on in your relationship. It doesn't matter what's happening there. You've got to stay together. That's the godly thing to do because that's what Paul says. Husbands and wives shall not separate. You know, that's just not the case. That's not the right context to take this. You have to take the whole counsel of scripture together. And Jesus conceded there are times where we should, where divorce is appropriate. And not only there are times for it, that that is actually the godly thing to do. And so if you're here today and you are divorced or have been divorced, or you've gone through a real tough breakup, then I want you to know that God loves you, that he's for you, that he cares for you, that he welcomes you in to a relationship with him, that you are not a second-class Christian, you're not a second-class citizen, that you are welcome here too. And if the church has ever brought judgment or condemnation on you and you have felt that, then I want to say on behalf of the Christian community, I'm sorry, because that is unfair. And it's not biblical. And it's important to recognise that. And I want to encourage you that um, where you might have felt pain or hurt in the past, that you can come free from that, that God is good, he loves you, and that he can bring restoration to your soul. So, I didn't want to talk about that too much, but we can do that someday if if you'd like to. In the Corinthian church, there were also people there, that, and they might be here today too, whom they were married, but only one person in the relationship had become a Christian. And evidently, the Corinthian church, where they were asking Paul about this, well, what do we do? You see why it's important to go through the context of this as we read through, because otherwise we'll just be confused. And they, in verse 12, they say this, and the next verse, so Paul says, I say to the rest of you, and now he's saying, this isn't the Lord saying, this is me saying it. He, he knows Jesus' sayings on marriage, but there's this situation that's occurring here where one person's becoming a Christian and the, the partner isn't, and he doesn't know what Jesus would say on this topic. So he's saying, look, I'm saying this. Um, this is my advice to you. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And so, because the thing is, you, you had men becoming Christians They were becoming Christians and then they were divorcing their wives and leaving their children because they thought that that was the right thing to do. And so he goes on. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy." Again, some fun verses. The prevailing thinking, which stemmed over from Jewish tradition of the day, was that if you had contact with a person who was unclean, that that then made you unclean. That made you unholy. So if um, you came in contact with someone like a leper, then you were particularly worried, not necessarily that you would get leprosy, although some people did think that, but you were particularly worried that they would make you unclean and unholy and, and not worthy to come before God. And this could happen just by associating with people, which is why Jesus got such a horrid time when he, uh, he got so much grief when he chatted with prostitutes and, and with lepers and with tax collectors, because these were people that considered to be unclean. And so the people are worried and they're saying, well, if I'm married to this person and she's not a Christian, should I get divorced? It's a good question. And perhaps there was other people in the church encouraging, oh, you've got to leave them. And they're asking Paul about this. And um, just to mention, there is an occasion, because Paul is thinking, he's thinking through, well, what would Jesus say? 
And there's an occasion in Matthew chapter 8 where there's a leper who comes to Jesus. There's large crowds around Jesus. And this leper, he comes towards Jesus and everyone around him is expecting Jesus to cast off this leper, to say, get away from me. And what Jesus does is he embraces the man. He touches the man and he heals the man. And I think Paul had this in mind because there's there's actually many, many, many verses throughout uh, many encounters that Jesus has with people. And what Jesus does is he shows us something. That when Jesus encounters someone who is unclean, it's not that Jesus becomes unclean, but the other person is transformed. And Paul, I think rightly, associates that same, the same thing that happens there with followers. He, he is saying that the transformative effect that a, a, a spouse, a Christian spouse, has on a non-Christian spouse is not that they become unclean, but the, the non-Christian spouse is transformed in some way. It's made holy. That's what the word sanctified means. It's not that they are saved. It's not salvation. Paul's not saying that. But he is saying that there's a transformative effect that a Christian has in the home uh, between their husband and between their children, which is a positive one, which is one not to be worried about, not to be scared of. So your children, no, they're not unclean. As it is, they are holy. And so Paul is encouraging them, far from breaking up, don't, you know, he doesn't want all these people becoming Christians and then breaking up and causing family division and, and separating from their homes. No, he's saying, no, no, stay together. Stay to, as far as it's possible to by you, stay with your, your spouse. Be the best spouse that you can be. Love them. Love your family. Don't ram the gospel down the throat, but love them and care for them and be with them. But, he says in verse 15, but if the unbeliever decides to leave, well, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in some circumstances. So the believer, the person who's a Christian, If the other person chooses to divorce, then that Christian is free in God's sight to remarry should they choose to. Because God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And you could read that last bit as associated with verse 13 and 14. And like, uh, like you could imagine that Paul might be saying, stay with them because you never know, they might get saved. But actually, the majority of scholars would say that, no, Paul links that to the, to the very preceding verse, which is, don't, if the unbeliever chooses to leave, don't try to force them to stay. How do you know? You never know. You don't know if you can save them anyway. It's, it's that kind of context. Either way, Paul continues and says, nevertheless, it's like regardless of your situation, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them. Just as God has called them, this is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and some uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation that they were in when God called them. And you might be thinking, what's, what's circumcision got to do with it? Well, again... Is this okay? We're, we're learning the Bible this morning. It's a little bit different. We don't always preach like this, but I, th- I just think it's helpful just to go through the passage and understand what Paul's saying. There were people in, there was Jewish people, and if you know, Jews would get circumcised, and um, who, when someone who wasn't a Jew, if someone became a Christian, they would say, oh, in order for you to be a real good Christian, you need to become circumcised. And so they would be trying to encourage people to become circumcised. So, all right, lads, don't worry. We're not going to ask you to do that here today. And, um, but 
Equally surprising is that um, in the culture of the day, if you went and did physical activity, like you went to do sports, you went down the gym, you would do that in the nude. And so if you were a bloke and you were down the gym exercising, it would be obvious if you were a Jew or not. And so there was a procedure called epispasm by which a Jew could go and have their circumcision reversed. And people were doing that. Uh, Jews would do that for many reasons. One is to get favour within the community if they wanted to make business contacts and they didn't want to be kind of... Um, uh, huh? Biased. Yeah, biased. Yeah, biased in the wrong way. Yeah, who cares? And... Um, Biased in the wrong way, yeah. So they might have this happen. But then, uh, and Paul is saying, look, stop faffing around, worrying about whether you're circumcised or not. It doesn't matter. What's important is you need to keep God's commandments. And then he, even, he goes on, he, he's sort of going on a bit of a tangent here. And he goes, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, well then do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord, is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were brought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person that is responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Paul's like, guys, just get on with it. Whatever situation you're living in, whether you're slave or free, it doesn't matter. Whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, it doesn't matter. The key is obedience to God. And at the time of writing, Christians were being persecuted more and more every single day. And also over that period, over the period that Paul's writing this letter, there was also a great famine in Rome. And that had spread all across the Roman provinces, including Corinth. And so what was happening was that um, this famine was really severe and it's estimated that about 50% of all children, young children, were died, were, were killed off. And so there's a real crisis going on. Christians are being persecuted, children are dying, homes are being ripped apart because of the persecution that's going on. And Paul now addresses that and he says, about virgins... I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy because of the present crisis, this crisis, this like famine, this persecution. I think that it's good for a man to remain as he is. So it's not, it's not a command. There's just a specific situation going on where Paul is saying it, it's, in this moment, it's good for people not to get married if they're able. And, but he, does, he goes on. Are you, oh, are you pledged to a woman? Are you engaged? Well, if you are, well, don't seek to be released. Just stick with her. Are you free from such a commitment? Well, don't look for a wife then. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if if a virgin marries, she's not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. So can you hear? He's got a pastoral heart. He genuinely cares for his church. He knows that you can have heartache as your children die in famine or as Christian homes get ransacked because of persecution. He's seen how hard it is for people to get married in this kind of context. And he's saying, hey, why don't you just stay as you are? Although if you are committed to someone, then go ahead with it. And then he says, what I mean is this, brothers and sisters, the time is short. From, from now on, those who have wives should live as they do not. Those who, who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if they were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if it not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. And he goes on, I would like to be... 
I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is not concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of the world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good. Not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way. And what's that way? It's in an undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried, this is the last bit, if anyone's worried that he might be acting honourably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong, and if he feels he ought to marry, then he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. So he's really hammering this home. It's not a sin to get married. And, uh, and when you do get married, sex and physical intimacy is good. And he says they should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own heart, in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry the virgin does better. Because he has an ability to uh, undivided devotion to God in a way that a married person can't. A woman is bound to her husband as long as she lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. And this is the only real command that he gives in this passage. But he must belong to the Lord. And in my judgment, she is happy if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit. Paul's only command in this passage is that if you are not a Christian and you are looking to get married, then you should marry a, another Christian, another believer. And uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't want you to not do that. He doesn't want to look you to look anywhere else, but to look to another believer and marry that person. And so that's, that's the passage. It's a big one, isn't it? And there's three quick things that I want to pull out, and I know that time is short, and so I, they really will be quick. And the first one is to singles. Singles, I want you to know that God loves you, that he loves you, that you don't need a partner to validate your Christianity or to validate who you are in God. And that as long as you are single, you should see your singleness as a gift. It is a gift from God, and you should cherish it. It's a good thing. Singleness is a gift, and often people can use their singleness as an excuse not to uh, share their gift, but singleness is a gift. And whenever Paul talks about a gift to the he talks about it in the context of the church. So your singleness is a gift to the church, is a blessing, and you can use that to serve God. You can use it to, to uh, I don't know, to pray for people, to get alongside people, to hang out with people. There's a reality that you can leave home by just grabbing your keys and walking out the door that many, many married people just can't do. And you don't have to sync your diaries. And married people in this room, um, in fact, singles, I want you to know this. Married people are often nervous about inviting you to their house because they think, oh, well, they might feel like the third wheel. Or if they invite a couple of couples, they might think, oh, well, we're trying to set them up, and so they don't do it. And um, married people, you need to know that it, you need to invite single people around the house because they want to be involved. They want to be part of your community. They want to engage. They want to see family life together. So get on and do it. And single people, don't worry about like, getting involved in family life. Just invite yourself around the house. Like, yeah, get in contact with people. Oh, can I come around this week? Yeah, yeah, sure. Because the married people would actually love you to come over. They're just nervous. They don't want to offend you or they don't want to like, make it weird. And uh, you're also released from trials. Uh, I haven't been a pastor for many years. I know that marriage life is tough. And there are trials in married life that you are spared from if you're single. 
And you're also released to worship God with all your gifting. And I know that we live in a culture that's very individualistic and can be self-centered and selfish. And I encourage you, if you're single, don't allow yourself to go down that route. But instead, instead see your singleness as a gift that you can share and use. And Paul was an ind- as a single man who planted churches, who looked after churches, he wrote letters to them, who encouraged people. And I believe that we should be seeing single people leading the way of planting churches, looking after churches and seeing people. And I want to encourage you to step out in your gifting, to rise on the wings like eagles and to go for it in God because he loves you and you don't need a spouse to validate who you are as a Christian. To married people, God loves you too. And for as long as you are married, because you won't be married forever or into eternity, you need to see that as a gift as well. It's the same verse. There's this gift and there's that gift. They're both gifts. And, you know, government, it didn't invent marriage. God did. You know this. God invented marriage. And he loves it. And also, the second thing to say is sex is good. Sex is a gift. It's for you. It's for your marriage. So don't deprive each other. Sometimes, maybe by mutual consent, but don't deprive each other. Use, don't allow sex to become a weapon. It's so easy sometimes in marital relationships to say, oh, well, if you do this, I'll give you sex. Well, it's, it's not yours to give. It's a mutual thing where you come together. All right? So make sure that you are doing that regularly. Have great sex. It's good. It is the best context it should be. In fact, married couples should have the best sex than, of a, than anyone ever because that is the place where God invented it for. So I want to encourage you to have good sex, but don't leave right away. You just wait. Keep your pants on. And keep your marriage vows alive. Come on, love is a decision in sickness and health, for richer, for poor, for better, for worse. Paul knows all this stuff and he's encouraging marriages. Don't split up. Don't don't separate. Even if you're married to someone who's not a Christian, don't separate. Stay with them, love them, be with them, cherish them, be the best spouse you can be. After all, the Bible is full of marriage and I started my first two ever Sundays talking about the bride and groom, Jesus and his church. And marriage, all of it, actually doesn't point to marriage itself. It points to the gospel. And I'm going to finish with a video. I'm going to say one more thing after that and we're going to worship. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Symbols, shadows, parables. Sometimes this is about that. Flowers are about love. Signatures are about promises. Fireworks are about celebrations. Poppies are about war. And marriage is about the Christian gospel. This mystery is profound, says Paul, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the wedding begins with the groom waiting at the front. He has pursued his bride and won her, and now he just has to wait. And when she eventually comes in, the whole room stands and stares at her beauty, her immaculate dress, pure and white, and spotless. She gets presented to him and they declare that they have no other partners. They hold hands. They make promises to have and to hold for better, for worse, forsaking all others as long as we both shall live. They exchange rings, signs of the covenant promises they have just made. 
They sign their names and make their vows legal. Then, as the ceremony concludes, they walk back out again, united as one. Everything he has is hers, and everything she has is his. Everybody celebrates with a meal. Later, they will express their physical union and share all of their possessions. She even takes on his name. Two have become one. And all this is about that. Jesus has made his people ready. His death for our sins has made us beautiful, pure, white, and spotless. We are given to him and to nobody else. We make promises to each other. Never will I leave you or abandon you, says Jesus, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. And we reply to him, I will forsake all other gods as long as we both shall live. There is an exchange of gifts. God gives us his spirit. There is a legal declaration. God says we are righteous in his sight. We walk on, united as one. Everything he has, his love, his power, his goodness, becomes ours. And everything we have, our sin, our shame, our past, becomes his. Everybody celebrates with a meal, bread and wine. We express our physical union through baptism in water. We give him access to all our possessions. We even take on his name and his identity. We become Christians. Two have become one. This is about that. So that's uh, Paul's words to the Ephesians about marriage. He loves it, it's good. You know what? Marriage, it points us to the gospel because it shows us its shape. But you know what? Singleness also points us to the gospel because it shows us its sufficiency. And as I mentioned last week, Jesus was a single celibate man who was the most fully complete human throughout history. And he, he knew what it meant to be loved by God, cherished, valued, purpose. And both of them point us to the gospel in this way. And so I'd love the band to come up. I said I had one more point and I haven't got time to go on it, but I will just say this about it, is that all of this is about life as a believer. And that he says, nevertheless, each person, whatever situation you're in, whether you're single, married, circumcised, uncircumcised, whether you've got a good job, a bad job, whatever it might be, that you, our role is to live life as a believer, trusting him, serving him in our context, in our situation, being devoted to God, loving him, because the kingdom is at hand, time is short, there's lots to do, there's lots of things to trust God for and to worship him for. And he says, I'm saying this for your own good not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to God. Let's stand, shall we? Today we've been talking about healthy relationships and the most important relationship that you have is with God the Father. And so today I just want to encourage you, we're just going to pray and we're going to worship and then we're going to finish our meeting there but in whatever way you feel appropriate however God has been speaking to you this morning let's pray for a fresh outpouring of the spirit 
that as we work out our singleness, our marriage, our whatever it might be, that we all would be able to serve God better in the context that we are in, whatever that might be. Living as though we didn't have any of it, but trusting God for it all. So can I just, just open up your heart to Jesus. Father God, just want to trust you. We love you. We just say, Lord God, would you have your way amongst us? Lord, we thank you for these passages, Lord, these Christians who are really taking seriously what it means to live by faith. And they're asking questions. And Lord, I pray, would you help us to do the same? Help us, Lord God, to think through what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Lord, thank you there's good news in your word. Thank you, Lord God, there's good news for singles. There's good news for marriage couples. Thank you, Lord God, there's good news for those of us who are in a dead-end job, for those of us who are, I don't know, in financial mess. There's good news for all sorts of different places and situations. Lord, thank you, there's good news for those of us who might be married to people that aren't Christians yet. There's good news for those of us that have been divorced in the past. Thank you, Father, that you're a good God, that you set captives free, that you reign victorious. And we just say, Lord God, have your way amongst us. You are worthy of our praise. We worship you. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please do come and visit us Sundays, 10am at the Odeon Cinema in Guildford. We look forward to seeing you.